From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department's quick shift to telework is due to upgrading systems much faster than usual, according to its chief information officer. Dana Deasy says a telework task force meets every day to address everything from equipment and network capacity to cybersecurity intel. NextGov reports Pentagon's funding the telework expansion partly with $10.5 billion from the stimulus bill. The Defense Department will get 60 new machines that will disinfect N95 face masks. The machines can clean almost 34 million masks a week, and they should be ready by May. GovExec reports FEMA and the Department of Health and Human Services will choose where the machines go. The Pentagon's behind on some cybersecurity work it was supposed to finish by the end of fiscal year 2016. The Government Accountability Office finds the DOD Cybersecurity Culture and Compliance Initiative, the Cybersecurity Discipline Implementation Plan, and Cyber Awareness Trainings still have components that aren't in place. Fifth Domain reports GAO gave the Defense Department seven recommendations. The coronavirus pandemic will have lasting implications for government and especially the Defense Department. One challenge to overcome is that the department had warning signs. Harrison Schramm is senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. He's co-author of new work on the response to COVID-19 for the department. Harrison, welcome. I have to give you and your colleagues at CSBA credit. You have two of the coolest quotes to lead into this report that I've ever read in all the years I've been in Washington, you cite the International Health Regulations Review Committee, the world's ill-prepared to respond to a severe influenza pandemic, and then you quote talking heads. What is the connection there among the, between those two things to what we're looking at at COVID-19? Well, well, thank you for that lead-in question, and good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, the 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 quote about the pandemics is timely because it's an enduring problem and one that we're going to have to think about uh, both now and in the future. And then uh, the talking heads quote is simply because uh, when I'm when I'm doing technical work, I will frequently get stuck on uh, on a set of songs and uh, talking heads stop making sense has been in heavy rotation. Uh, while we, while this report was being written. It seems uh, eminently fitting that uh, a song, Life During Wartime, from Stop Making Sense, fits into everything that we're dealing with. What specifically is the meat of the issue that the Pentagon is up against? Not just keeping uh, it, its troops safe, not just keeping its civilian employees safe, but what is the, what's the bulk of the problem here as far as the pandemic for policymakers? So my, my colleagues and I have been thinking about this very much in terms of a war, except instead of being at war against an opposing force, we're actually at war against a force of, na of nature. If you think about the impacts of the economy, the uh, $2 trillion that were recently approved as stimulus, with more stimulus likely on the way, uh, it's, it's very natural to think about this in terms, at least in societal impact, both now and in the long term, uh, as in terms of a of a war, uh, I think that it's going to change both how the Department of Defense is funded. Uh, defense spending, is, as most people know, is half of the government's discretionary spending. The money that's coming from stimulus has to come from somewhere. But uh, a related and perhaps more important issue is that in the future we will see the money that is being spent on defense reallocated 
because I think this is going to be something that's going to be part of our consciousness and part of our story for a very long time. In that respect then, what's the implication for people who are doing, say, budget planning inside the department? We've been hearing for the last several years leaders of the department saying, yeah, we're seeing little increases now, but we expect to see those increases go away. Now all of a sudden you have a pandemic you have to fight and you have to add that into, I suppose, everything else that you're up against. I think, uh, I, I think that's correct. And it is important to balance both the fact that we're fighting the pandemic at home right now, and there is clearly a role for the Department of Defense in aiding the, the civil infrastructure in that, but we still have our worldwide commitments. So balancing these things along with the, the very real need uh, to keep the economy moving and keep people uh, you know, fed and in their homes is, is very important. So it's going to be uh, a delicate balance to get that right. What are the operational impacts that this could have in the future, in out years? We, we know what it's, how it's impacting readiness and so on today. We're seeing reports from different units and, and uh, Navy ships and so on about how this is hitting them now. But what operationally do you expect to see moving forward, Harrison? I think, I think that this is giving us a great pause to re, reconsider how we think about um, some systems. Uh, for example, uh, it has been our opinion uh, for the last decade or longer that efficiency has really been the driving, uh, the driving metric uh, when we consider future policies. And I think that the coronavirus pandemic is giving us reason to think about resilience, which resilience is generally not economically optimal. Uh, but I think we're going to see in, increased uh, focus on resilience uh, in the future, both operationally and having more stock and safety stock on board ships and other deployed units, um, as well as for the, uh, for the ashore and home infrastructure. Uh, specifically, we think that uh, telework is going to become much more part of, uh, of both the Defense Department and the United States writ large. I alluded at evidence by this interview. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, by the entire program. I alluded at the beginning of the conversation, Harrison, that the department had warning signs. I don't mean to sound like I was picking on them. The entire world had warning signs because the quote that you cited is from 2011, as we discussed. Not much seems to have happened between 2011 and 2020, unfortunately. What has to happen and who has to do it to make sure that the next pandemic, we don't have to relearn all of these lessons all over again? So I think, I think that this is very much in our conscience because it has gone from a hypothetical scenario to a real scenario. Uh, we spend quite a bit of time uh, in the opening chapter of our report talking about exponential growth, which uh, as a professional mathematician, that's something that I'm familiar with, but uh, that's not something that uh, most humans naturally, that's not some, the way that we normally think. And the, the danger, and, and perhaps the lesson here, is that at the beginning, uh, linear growth and exponential growth uh, look the same. It's very much like what Ernest Hemingway said about going bankrupt, slowly at first, then all of a sudden. And uh, looking in hindsight, I think that might be an accurate way to depict uh, the, the growth of coronavirus worldwide, slowly at first, then all of a sudden. I think a related issue is that if, if nothing else, we're learning that um, a communicable disease that is spreading in one part of the world with the interconnectedness of the global economy is probably everyone's problem.
Harrison, thanks very much for coming on. Congratulations on the new work from you and your colleagues. Appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Up next, the future of the future year's defense plan. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what information st should stay open to the public and what needs more classification? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Defense Department wants to classify its future year's defense plan. Leaders say it will help the department avoid accidentally revealing sensitive information, but those numbers have been unclassified since 1989. Fred Bartles is a policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. Thanks very much for coming on. What's your sense of the reasons behind why the Pentagon wants to classify these numbers after having them open for so long, Fred? Uh, my pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me here, Francis. I, I really appreciate it, the opportunity to talk about this. Uh, the one thing that is interesting is that the best way to think about this issue is if the department didn't want to do its homework. Uh, in the FY18 National Defense Authorization Act, there was a requirement for them to compile unclassified future years defense spending uh, plans and release that to Congress, uh, to the Comptroller General, to the Congressional Budget Office, and uh, to the Congressional Research Services, which are all entities that should have access to that compiled data. Uh, the big difference that they are arguing, that, that which is the part that they don't want to do, is the compilation of that data. Uh, most of the data exists out there already. So if you want to know how many planes the department is going to buy in FY22, you can look at that future year's defense plan. The question is, uh, how are you going to compile that data and how is that data going to be accessible for those congressional audiences. So you're writing about the reason for this being a bad idea, basically arguing from a transparency perspective as much from a budgeting and information perspective. Am I reading that right, Fred? That, that's correct. Um, the main takeaway that I think that all your viewers and, and listeners should know is that in the United States, national defense is a team sport. Uh, DOD cannot go at it alone. It requires Congress to actually approve its budget um, for, in, for Congress to have its support, it requires the population to have a good understanding of what it is there as well. They can not just say, oh, this is classified. Uh, you would have seen our great reasoning for having this program if only you had access to the classified data. That just doesn't cut it in the United States. And you need to think of national defense as a team sport, and you need to be able to share data uh, across the different actors so there is a better understanding of what we are trying to accomplish. It strikes me if this is a transparency issue, then there are implications not just for the department, not just for the general public, but for the defense industrial base, the companies that do business with the department. Is that a, a fair read? Yeah, they are part of the national defense team in the United States. Uh, it's none of us would want the, the government to be in the business of building F-35s to building M1 Abrams tanks. So we need to have a predictable uh, pathway and have a good understanding of what are, are the plans that the UD wants to accomplish in order for the defense industrial base to be able to adapt itself. Fred, what is your sense of who's where on this issue? 
obviously the department is saying it wants to classify these numbers again. Where's Congress on this? And who has to do what to keep these numbers open or go ahead and, and, and let the Pentagon start to classify these numbers? So the question here is how BOD is going to fulfill a congressional requirement that, that became the law. So there are multiple congressional requirements and congressional reporting requirements that DOD goes to the negotiating table with Congress in order to have a solution that is amenable for both sides. So that's what needs to happen now. Uh, unfortunately, they let this situation get into the place that it became how they want to change the law to allow them to provide that information in a different way. So they need to go to the negotiating table with the authorizers and talk to the Senate Armed Services Committee and to the House Armed Services Committee. They are the ones that have a vested interest in having the available data as they have requested through the law. So the place to watch then moving forward is the National Defense Authorization Act process as the authorizers decide what they want and, and, what, and don't want to let the Pentagon do. Am I reading that right? The place to watch is the NDAA process. Uh, if we had hearings going on right now, we have to watch as well to see which members are very, uh, are very interested in having uh, that data organized in the way that the, the law requires. Uh, and from the reaction that you saw from all the, the both the chairmen and the ranking member, you see that they, they have a vested interest in, in having more available data. We have about a minute left, and that's kind of what I was getting at in a COVID-19 world. It's hard to say other than when the members choose to make statements. It's hard to know what, who's where on different issues and, and how vehemently they oppose or support whatever their position is. Is that fair? Yeah, that is fair. Uh, they have been in touch with, with the Pentagon as well and with their legislative office to get an understanding of how DOD can provide the information that Congress needs to do its job. Fred, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Up next, buying at the Pentagon in a COVID-19 world straight ahead on Government Matters. What's coming for industry during and after coronavirus? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. The invocation of the Defense Production Act is just one tool in the department's arsenal to get what it needs to fight COVID-19. And the coronavirus could change the Pentagon's acquisition tune in a post-COVID world. Frank Kendall, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and former Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics. Frank, it's great to see you. What is your sense of the tools that the department is using or can use to try to get what it needs to fight COVID-19 as fast as possible? Uh, the, the department has two problems, really. It has the problem of helping the national effort against the disease and also the problem of taking care of the people within the department, uh, both the uh, military people themselves, their families, of course, and also the contractors that work for the department. And I think uh, in the latter of those two, I think the department's doing reasonably well. Uh, it had been some stumbles at the beginning. There wasn't uniform guidance put out. Uh, the industry was concerned, and I think justifiably, about some of the early guidance. Uh, but I think that's that's righted itself to a fairly large extent, uh, at least in terms of the contractor side of the house. Military, I think, is still coming to grips with the implications of the disease to some degree. Uh, 
Um, as far as helping the nation, uh, the DOD is doing a lot, certainly, but my impression is that it tends to be more reactive than proactive, and that's largely because the administration has not accepted overall responsibility for, for this fight that we're in. Uh, it's essentially leaving it to the governors to fight and then ask for help and supporting them. And uh, I think, frankly, that's not the right approach. What is the department's, or what could be the department's role in trying to turn that around, Frank? What, what happens to move forward to try to get better results? Well, for the nation, I think, uh, again, I give a lot of credit to all the people who are out there working very, very hard trying to help. There's a lot going on. Um, the Corps of Engineers have been very good. Uh, I think others like Defense Logistics Agency have been very engaged now. Uh, there's a supply task force at FEMA that's being run by uh, a military person. Uh, again, though, I think it's still in the state of being more reactive than proactive. We need to, at this point in time, get ahead of the testing shortage that is going to be necessary before we can reopen the economy and reopen the country. On the internal side, uh, the military has a fundamental problem with the fact that military units are inherently in close contact with each other all the time. Ships are one obvious manifestation of that and maybe the most severe, but there are a number of other ones. And the military has been trying to preserve its mission capability and readiness while dealing with this. And I think they probably initially at least underestimated how serious the problem COVID-19 was. I'm, uh, as, no, go ahead. go ahead, Frank. Sorry. Like I said, with regard to industry, um, the thing that industry needs to know first and foremost was that any increased cost associated with uh, taking care of their workforce were going to be covered. And uh, the initial guidance out of the department in that regard uh, seemed to suggest that people were supposed to just keep going to work. And I think that was a mistake, but it was corrected reasonably quickly. Uh, Ellen Lord, my successor basically, has worked very hard, and I want to give her credit for this, to reach out to industry and hear from industry. She's having very frequent interactions with the associations uh, and also with industry directly. And I think that's helping. And I think that the guidance that's out now uh, is, is pretty good. There are implementation problems because it's just such a vast enterprise. There are so many people in the contracting chain of command, uh, for example, the different chains of command, that, that getting everybody to act the same way at the same time is very difficult. Now, that's for the Defense Department. Uh, other parts of the federal government, I think, in particular the intelligence community, have not adopted the same guidance, and it would be, I think, good from industry's perspective if, if there was uniform guidance for contractors across the government. I mentioned earlier in the program, in the headlines tonight, Frank, that uh, Dana Deasy, the CIO at the Pentagon, says that uh, they have shifted to telework faster than normal because of some upgrades they've been able to do. Is it your sense that that could stick, at least in the acquisition community, that the acquisition workforce could be more widely dispersed uh, and, and could essentially work from home most of the time in a post-COVID environment. Would that work? I think it might. And one thing one thing that I'm seeing is that uh, people are finding that telework isn't all that bad. That the, and this is anecdotal, but um, people are finding that avoiding that commute every day is, is can be a positive thing, uh, can make them actually more productive. Uh, I think a lot of traditional managers are uncomfortable with it because they just haven't done it much, and this is changing that. So in that sense, it may accelerate that both for government employees and for others. On the other side of the uh, of the ledger is the idea that we're going to be hungry for contact as, after all this isolation. That people are going to really want to get back and, and uh, have more personal, more direct interactions. So I think there are things that cut both ways. But I think overall, the acceptability of telework 
and uh, its productivity uh, will be will be demonstrated by this, and people will be more comfortable with it. We just have about a minute left, Frank. You mentioned that the response that you're hearing is kind of anecdotal. What would be the right data to look at, and when do you think the time would be right to look at that data to determine what the results really look like from the big telework shift? That's really interesting, I, because the, the social distancing imposes, I think, some productivity costs on people, uh, in factory floors, for example. And um, I think it'll be very mixed. If you just look at productivity data for different organizations and so on, you're gonna see slowdowns. Uh, but that's more because of the physical separation impacts and going to multiple shifts and so on. Um, it, it'll be something to take some real in-depth analysis to try to sort out. And I think you're gonna have to isolate on specific cases uh, and try to learn from those as opposed to from a general broad brush, brush approach. Frank Kendall, thanks very much. It's great to see you. Great to be with you, Francis. Thank you. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anywhere, anytime. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News, Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.